Hey guys, welcome back to the Rough Guide to Everywhere. Now, in the past, people have asked me, what's the point of a guidebook when you can just Google it? And it's true, in this digital world, there's a bottomless pit of travel information online. When you Google what to do in Paris, over a billion search results come up. But it's often hard to discern between what is regurgitated information or information that's been paid for by a brand or a third party and what is reliable research. Which is why I think now more than ever it's so important that we have our expert rough guide travel writers on the road updating our guidebooks like they have done for the last 35 years. So this episode is a celebration of those people who are out there right now getting their hands dirty, sitting on rickety old buses crossing a country and scribbling notes on the back of receipts. All in the name of making sure that the rough guide slotted in your backpack is as reliable, up-to-date and honest as ever. And obviously a big part of the job of being a travel writer is meeting local people and uncovering previously untold stories. So on the very rare occasion that our authors hit UK soil, I try my best to get them straight into our studio to tell me about their most recent trip. In this week's episode, I speak to two Rough Guides authors, Shafik Megji and Harriet Constable. Now, Shafik reports from the Bolivian Amazon, where he visits the site of a lost pre-Inca civilization and makes a haunting discovery. But first up, we travel to Nairobi in Kenya, where Harry Constable sheds light on an unlikely rollerblading scene in a car park in the heart of the city. What brought you to Nairobi in the first place? I wanted to become a freelance journalist and travel writer and I got put in touch with a journalist who was living out there already and we had a conversation and she said Nairobi's going to be fascinating for you I think and especially because I was interested in travelling to lesser known parts of the world and and because Kenya at the time no it was people were thinking that it wasn't a good place to travel to and that it might be dangerous and certainly there are there are some areas you might want to avoid or it's smart to know a bit more about before you travel. But there's, when I got there, I realised there's so much good stuff going on in the world doesn't necessarily know that much about this. So it was quite tactical. So you live there, don't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've lived there for two and a half years. So you've, did you update part of the Rough Guide to Kenya? Yeah, so yeah. I went all the way up to, I, did, I got the north. Northern Kenya was my chapter. And I went all the way up to Lake Takana. And one of the smaller tribes in Kenya, the El Molo tribe, is as far north as I got in the country, which is right up on the banks of Lake Takana and just north of an area called Loyangalani. Um, yeah, not a lot of tourists get up there. So yeah. that was pretty spectacular to go that far. Is that the first guidebook job that you've got? Yeah, exactly. How would you find it? Fascinating. I mean, the, the amount of people that you get to meet and you're sort of popping into random little cafes in the middle of nowhere being like, is a smoothie smoothie still 300 shillings? Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and people, the conversations that spur off the back of that is pretty, pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so you sent us in a recording. Can you just tell me a bit about that? Um, so the recording is of a rollerblading rink um, but it's 
on a Monday to Saturday, the rollerblading rink's actually a car park um, in the central business district of Nairobi. And then on a Sunday, all the cars clear out. The cars all belong to the local office workers who sit in their kind of high-rise office blocks surrounding the car park there. And then on a Sunday, they clear out and all of these rollerbladers come in. Um, and all around the sides of the rink are these ro- these battered old rollerblades lined up, which I gather is the second-hand rollerblades. They've come from the UK and America and Canada and they get shipped to this big market in Nairobi and then the local guys go and buy them and then they rent them out over the weekend. So it's kind of like the rollerblading fad that existed in the UK in the 90s has now crashed down in Nairobi and is being absolutely loved by like these urban Kenyans who who spend their weekend um, blading around, playing hockey, playing street hockey. Some of the kids are having lessons. It's just, it's a nice atmosphere of, of parents and teenagers and tiny, tiny children and everyone in between. Mm. I think I, I sat well on the not very good uh, scale. <laughs> right. But I was very welcomed and supported in my terrible yeah. rollerblading. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give it a go. Yeah. This lady's going to help me down the ramp. Oh, my God, I'm definitely going to fall. Okay. I'm killing it. I'm killing it. Just grabbing onto the wall like an old lady here. <laughs> Looking good. All right, down the ramp of doom. Okay, nice. You can go fast. <laughs> Sorry, I'm you just falling. I can go fast. Okay, then you're allowed that side. If you cannot go fast, this side. Okay, this is for the beginners area. The beginners, yeah. So to my to my left here, there's a whole section with mainly toddlers, yeah. and that's where I'm going to start today. I'm going to start in the slow section, and then we're going to build up to the uh, okay, speed the skating. So thank you so much. We've been, they're letting us go. We're, they're letting us go and we're beginning a rollerblading adventure. <laughs> Everyone is laughing at us. We're laughing at us because we are the only tourists, it looks like, in the entire um, roller park. Can you paint a picture of what, what's it look like and what's it feel like being there? So it's a big car park it but it's just a standard car park it's got rutted cracked ground you know poor concrete job uh concrete walls at the edge with people sitting around there's a few um flower beds in the middle of the rink there with tall trees which if you follow it all the way up with your eyes then you've got this lovely bright blue sun sky and sunny day and and yeah it's just a it's a good atmosphere but but the surroundings are very random for this this eclectic sunny afternoon of rollerblading is actually in the middle of a load of office blocks in a car park um but but that's what they they're making it work i guess so there's some kids over here i guess a, a few teenagers and they're just on their rollerblades taking a selfie welcome to kenya Santi Sana. Okay, so we're skating out of the beginner zone and into the intermediate zone of the car park. Hi. It's just a guy on a giant bicycle wearing a, uh, what looks like a American football top. Yeah, we're now into like speed skating zone and we're just, we're just pausing for a break because 
everyone that's coming past is pretty serious and going, going quite fast. Apart from one woman over there who looks like she's not quite comfortable to be in the... That's going to be me in a minute. She's wobbling around quite a lot. But the really nice thing is that everything goes and everyone seems to be welcome. So there's speed skaters who are kind of gliding around elegantly um, quite and seriously as well. They're going round and round and round for an hour just in line. And each foot is... Each of their feet is about a foot away from each other and they keep it like that the whole time. It's very skillful. <laughs> um, meanwhile, those tiny kids are kind of falling over or wobbling across the rink right in front of them and someone more skillful will swing by and kind of pick them up or hoist them up as they go past and have a laugh or pat them on the head and then that kid wobbles off again. And <laughs> other ones, there's a guy, Sam, who's just most amazing rollerblader and he's just showing off all his tricks and impressing the ladies that sit around the edge and take photos of him. Excuse me. Hey, Hi. how are you? I'm fine. I'm Harriet. I'm Sam. You're the best, Sam. Yeah, you're thanks. the best That's here. Yeah. So you've got to teach us how to do what you've been doing, Sam, because I think we're ready. Yeah, I'm teach you. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> right. I want to do that thing where it's the one leg with the one, yeah, with the, with the other leg up. Slalom, yeah, let's do that first. Yeah, let's start with the basics and then work up to the one leg in the air situation. Sam, how long have you been how long have you been skating here? Yeah. Yeah. Since 2009. 2009. Every Sunday. No? Yeah, every Sunday. Every Sunday. Weekdays are good for my own. Sometimes you come not on a Sunday. Yeah, evening. When it's quiet. Yeah, Is there normally Okay. Always always every day. Yeah. Not just Sundays. Yeah, not on Sundays. But people, you don't, they only skate here only on Sundays. Okay. Yeah. But you have your own skates, so you can I come have, anytime. I have a lot of skates. Oh, yeah? I have like 20 pairs. Yeah. Who's this? I train him. Ah. I'm the coach. I was really how to do backslides, there ups, and feet. He's very good. So, how, how old is this guy? What's your name? Hello. Nice. I'm Harriet. Nice to meet you. I'll tell you how to do spins and backwards. Yeah. Uh, go forward and turn. Let's have backwards. a look. We're going to see what his protege is. And then people like Sam, who is a young, smart, super cool, terrifyingly cool guy um, who is amazing at rollerblading. He's been doing it for like nine or ten years. Um, and he'll be there either giving people lessons or... Um, or just blading around and trying new things. He says he looks at Instagram for, he told me he looks at Instagram for the new ideas from, I think it was Singapore, he says. He'll go on, he'll go on Instagram um, looking at Singapore rollerblading skills. What, for like new tricks uh, Looks for stuff. new tricks. And then he'll do things like, one's called foot gun or something. And then he'll start doing it and doing it and doing it until he's perfected it. What's a foot gun look like? Yeah, hard to describe. You're sort of kneeling down. One, there's only one wheel on the on the ground. Okay. So if you think both blades have got four wheels, mm. he's only got one, and it's his toe. His left foot is on the ground. His wheel, his toe wheel is on the ground, and everything else is off the ground, with his right leg sticking up in the air. Okay. <laughs> Did you give the foot gun a go? I did not. I couldn't <laughs> even, I could barely even wibble my way in and out of the cones, which he thought was very funny. Poor guy. Cho cho azungu, cho cho azungu. And I want us to grow up together, okay? Okay. So your legs seem to be like meeting together at the center of the two cones. Mm -hmm. So you, you assume there are some dots in the center, each and every. 
Okay. Like you show me. Okay. So this one, you start with your legs outside of the cone, you bring them in between the two cones, and you go out to touch, and then you bring them back out again. Okay. No problem. Ooh. Just doing it. Doing it. Doing it. Yep, killed it. <laughs> you can't do it at all, but I did it pretty well. The other really cool thing about what Sam's doing is that he, there's also a few street kids that live around the uh, car park there who I was quite shocked to hear live on the cardboard, um, in the flower beds there, there's some pieces of cardboard and Sam was explaining to me that's where the street kids live. Oh, wow. And so you'll see them walking around, um, rifling through the rubbish bins there and then of an evening when that car park clears out, they'll just go to bed on those cardboard boxes. Um, so Sam meets up with them. He tells them to come be there at 11 tomorrow and we'll do a rollerblading lesson. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and he says it's really, he thinks it's really cool because they're always there on time and they're like, coach, 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 like give us a lesson and it gives, gives them something exciting to look forward to huh. and what I think is a very bleak life for them. Well, there's a thousand, so, uh, 400 back. So Santi, we'll see you next week. Even Friday we'll be here. You'll be here Friday? Yeah, it's a holiday. Oh, right, and so Monday? whenever there's a Even holiday. Monday and okay. Sunday. So whenever there's a holiday, you're here, you're here, you're here. plus Sundays. Plus Sundays. Santi, nice to meet you. See you soon. I can't have you in and not ask you the question as our rough guide to Kenya expert. <laughs> like, if someone's to go to Nairobi, are there two or three things that they just absolutely must do that maybe is a little bit hidden or unexpected or not, you know, on the top five list you'll find on Google? Mm. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um... So I don't know if these are on the top five, this is on the top five list or not, but some of my absolute favorite things to do in Nairobi. First is to go to Karura Forest. It's this giant forest in the middle of the city there. And as soon as you're in it, you, you feel like you could be in the complete wilderness. And it's full of monkeys jumping through the trees and tracks where people go cycling and walking and there's a waterfall. If you want to do a 20 kilometer hike, you can do that. If you want to just do a short stroll, you can do that. And it also has a great restaurant in it called the River Cafe, uh, which is this beautiful vista kind of, it's a decking with open sides and it overlooks just luscious green. It's amazing how green Nairobi is actually. And so it's overlooking luscious green forest and it's a really lovely place to go for lunch after you've been for a cycle or a run in the forest. It's nice. one of my favorites. Um, there's, an, there's a hidden gem of a cafe called Amani Yaju which is in an area called Riverside, um, also very central in the middle of town, really. Um, and it's a there's a garden cafe and there's also a shop. Just a cool place to hang out for the day. From Nairobi, we travel halfway around the world to the depths of the Bolivian Amazon. I caught up with Shafiq Megji to hear about his recent trip and to find out what happened when he visited an ancient civilization that was only unearthed in the last few decades. Okay, we're rolling. Cool. So Shafiq, we've heard from you before in series one of the podcast from Costa Rica, where you were also in the rainforest, kind of getting your David Attenborough hat on. Absolutely. Can you tell me about what's, the, what's your background with South America and Latin America? Is that an area that you know particularly well? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the areas that I specialise in. I mean, I think as a kid, I was always fascinated by uh, the Incas and the rainforest and just extreme environments. Um, but I only visited um, about 2004. I'd been working as a journalist in London, as a sports reporter, uh, but I got fed up. I'd ne- never taken a gap year, um, and I was tempted by Carnival in Rio. So I uh, uh, backpacked around south america and fell in love with it i started writing about it i started writing about travel there uh and that's led on to where i am now yeah out of interest what's your favorite thing about the job of updating a guidebook because i think in people's heads it's i don't know it's quite easy or you're just like traveling around and, it, and it's very you know taking notes on the back of kind of bits of bits of scraps of paper or whatever but like what did you find the reality of guidebook updating to be like when you first started uh, yeah, I mean, my perception before working uh, for Rough Guides and before doing any guidebooks was that, oh, yeah, very easy, uh, very glamorous, lying by the pool, jotting <laughs> down my thoughts and experiences. Um, and the reality, 95% of the time, is uh, is sadly not that. I mean, my my favourite part really is, apart from exploring new places, is actually meeting people. I mean, you do so much of the research is based on talking to local people, talking to other travellers. And it's really those human interactions and getting a different take on things, getting a different way of looking at things that really, for me, that's what travel's about. Absolutely. So tell me about Bolivia. So I've I've never been to Bolivia before. I've been to Uruguay and Argentina. That's the, kind of the extent of my South American knowledge. I think like... I think of Bolivia as being a classic backpacker destination. I think a lot of people would group it in maybe with Peru, possibly Ecuador. What is it that makes Bolivia unique as a destination? Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it's, it's one of the least known countries in, in Latin America, even though it's right in the heart of the, uh, the continent. It's bordered by Brazil and with and Argentina, Chile, Peru, um, Paraguay as well. Um, but it's it, it's fascinating. I mean, most people think of it um, in terms of the Andean side. They compare it with uh, Peru, as you say. Think of mountains, llamas, and probably not that much more. But that's only one side of the uh, the, the country. Um, the uh, the eastern side near the borders with um, Brazil, for example. Uh, there's deserts. There's savanna, as you get in Argentina, mm. and a third of the country is within the Amazon basin. It's still relatively little visited when you compare to Peru, for example, or Brazil. Um, but it's got so much to offer. It's so diverse. Um, in the south, you've got the biggest, world's biggest salt flats. Uh, on the border with Peru, you've got Lake Titicaca, which is the world's highest navigable lake. Uh, you've got the world's most dangerous road, which is popular for uh, mountain bike oh, trips. Yeah, I've, I've seen that before. Is it like 30 miles or something like that? And it's people kind of winding down the side of this yeah. great canyon. With, with, with sheer drops. and um, <laughs> But you've also, I mean, a lot of it is, is altitude in the um, in, in the west. So you've got the world's highest city or the world's highest cities in Potosi and El Alto. But it's a place where you have real life witches. You can go to witches markets in La Paz and find all kinds of weird and wonderful potions. So why were you there recently? Uh, so I was there recently to update the rough guide to Bolivia. But to be honest, I was tired of being cold and constantly out of altitude and constantly out of breath. So um, I swapped with my colleague to um, to do some of the east and particularly the Amazon basin. So describe the what is it like? What's the Amazon basin like in Bolivia? I mean, about a third of the country lies within the Amazon basin. And the great thing in Bolivia 
as compared with Brazil, for example, or even parts of Peru, is that it's much easier to visit uh, pristine or virgin rainforest and escape tourism and essentially uh, modern civilization. Yeah. So you were in so you're in the rainforest, and what exactly were you doing there? So you were trying you were meeting up with people to explain about the ancient civilizations that used to live. So the flight takes you to Ruanabake, which is the hub of ecotourism. Now, if you keep travelling um, east towards the Brazilian border, uh, you get to cattle country. Hmm. And near there, there's some absolutely fascinating remnants of a, essentially a, a civilization that was, that was only really discovered or really properly understood over the last, um, last few decades. Wow. Um, it goes under many names. It's commonly known as the Moxos culture. So they predated the Incas. Um, and within modern scholarship, it was, it was commonly thought that there was no, it was impossible for a sophisticated civilization to have um, arrived in the, in, in the Amazon just because of the harshness of the terrain. But actually, in, with satellite technology in, in recent years, they've discovered a network of around 20,000 man-made structures. Wow. So they're commonly called uh, lomas, which are hills in Spanish, which are huge man-made mounds. And these were often linked by causeways. And there were man-made canals. So many people think that uh, this culture was the, the origin, or at least one of the origins of the myth of El Dorado, of a lost sophisticated civilization oh, right. uh, of gold in in the amazon huh. so while out there you sent us in an interview uh, who who was this with well when i visited the town of trinidad which is the biggest in the um, bolivian amazon i was very keen to take a uh, take a guided trip to visit some of these uh, lomas so my guide took me out on a uh, a boat trip down one of the main rivers there which is now still used for trade mm. and then we broke off from it and uh, took one of these man-made channels that had been built maybe a thousand years ago maybe two thousand years ago through into a, a lagoon and then we pulled up to a what to you know first first glance just looks like a uh, a hill a natural hill and it's covered with trees and there's there's a family that lives there now <laughs> so they had all their kids toys and things like that but actually this was one of the man-made mounds that had been built by the uh, the Moxos culture. Wow so what was it like actually kind of getting out of the boat and getting onto this mound? Uh, to start off very muddy and so I was immediately out of the boat and my uh, my um, feet were sinking into the mud <laughs> but then almost every step you took you were standing on um, broken bits of pottery because uh, I'd gone just after the rainy season so each rainy season brings a new layer of ancient pottery to the uh, to the surface so I was walking around very gingerly to be honest because I it, it feels like you're walking over museum exhibits and then you soon soon realize that the app the, the 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 hill is completely covered with these broken shards of pottery wow so after we landed um, on the island, uh, my guide gave me a bit more background about the culture. This is the same time of Tiwanakus. Tiwanakus, after Tiwanaku came Aymaras, and after Aymaras, Incas. Yeah. So this uh, ethnical group lives between 800 before Christ and uh, 1200 after Christ. So in this time, they, uh, they built this kind of... Uh, Hills. Yeah. Before 1990, um, there were not too much information about it. 
even me, for example, I didn't study in, in, in the school. No? You, yeah, people yeah. didn't learn about it. Yeah, now we have a lot of information and we have these uh, places to show you. No? Mm. Uh, for example, we know that they build this kind of uh, hills yeah. to get safe in the, in the rainy season. No? So when it floods, it gets yeah. them above the water. So, wow. All around you are able to see, for example, this is pottery. Yes. First of all, they made the, the pottery just to, to use, no, for like a tool. And after that, uh, when they are more advanced, they, they put some figures, no? Yeah. And after the figures came the painting, no? So you are able to see, for example, that, that these people use many figures and paintings. Yeah. And so it wow. was very advanced for just one. one uh, one whole pot. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, they put an, uh, some tools, some other pottery, ceramic yeah. inside, and sometimes they put some uh, bodies. No. Oh, so the remains of like yeah. ashes. I see. No, the bodies. No. The, the whole so, body. Yeah. Wow. Because I'm going to in show you. In huge pots. Yeah. So, in in this place. Yeah. Uh, two weeks. Two weeks ago, yeah. I came and I found some teeth. Really, in I, in like the remains yeah. of a pot. And I'm going oh, to incredible. show you because uh, I, I put some I don't know some, a mark, no, to yeah. So, I'm so you remember where it is? Go. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, let's let's go and see that. <laughs> yep. Wow. Oh, it's it's really well preserved. And this is the mouth, no. Yeah. And many teeth. They're incredibly preserved. <laughs> yep. Wow. What was that moment like when you actually first you saw the remains of, of a body? Uh, to be honest, quite shocking. I hadn't expected to see anything like that there. And you just saw the, uh, the mouth of the pot just exposed above the, the dirt line. And within it, the jaw and the teeth... Of, uh, of what was obviously a child's skull. Um, I mean, it was incredibly well preserved. It probably only come to the surface this year, possibly the year before. Um, and it was really, it was, it was, it was quite shocking and quite a moving thing to see. Really, I'd, I'd ne never come across anything quite like that before, and particularly not in situ. Yeah. Outside of a outside of a museum. That's it. It doesn't sound like. A typical museum where everything's quite sanitized and <laughs> in displays like you're sludging through the mud and you're finding uh, human remains yeah it's... I mean uh, it's, it's not a museum at all I mean a family a local indigenous family still live on this island they grow their fruit trees there there's delicious um, grapefruits for example there's cats and dogs and chickens and uh, there's a very rusty motorbike that's parked in a shed there and they have their uh, shack-like home. I mean, there, there is there is no preservation there. Um, but indeed, this is only one of you know thousands and thousands of other islands that presumably have similar other uh, remains within. Um, Do you get a lot of modern families living on them? Do you know these are indigenous communities? Mm. So in many ways, the descendants of the people that are buried in them in this area. It's mainly indigenous communities that still live there. You do get um, some plantations. And and to the, the Beni region, which is this part of the Bolivian Amazon, 
in recent decades have seen a huge migration of people. As I said before, this is cattle country. I mean, there's a huge, huge cattle industry there. Roads are being built. There's a lot of development going on in other parts of the Amazon, the Bolivian Amazon. There's major hydroelectric projects. This area is changing really, really quickly. And I was I was very conscious of this when I visited that if I go back in five years, 10 years, 20 years time, it just won't exist, certainly in this way anymore. So with that improving infrastructure, is that bringing a lot more tourism as well? Well, funnily, funnily enough, uh, no. Um, there's... In Ruanabake, which is on the, the western side of the, the Bolivian Amazon, I mean, this has been a tourism, an ecotourism hub for the best part of 30 years. Um, but in the last five or six years, tourism has dramatically dropped off there. Uh, and a major reason for that is that the government plans to build a hydroelectric dam, which will flood huge areas. Um, I stayed at a beautiful and award-winning lodge that... Um, that supports the local indigenous community there. That'll probably be probably be underwater if the dam goes ahead. Um, there's there's a lot lot of campaigning against it. Yeah. As it seems, as we talk now, it looks like it's going ahead. So um, that will really have a devastating impact. God. There's a lot of roads being built, as I said before. And traditionally, when roads are built through the Amazon region, as you've seen in Brazil as well. Uh, huge swathes of the rainforest on either side of it are also destroyed because it makes it easier for people to move in and farm, ranch, extract the natural resources there. Um, and, and I think there's, there's obviously a huge impact on the, the wildlife there, and that's very important. The Bolivian Amazon is one of the most biodiverse areas in the world. Park National Medidi has a 1,000 of the world's 9,000 bird species, to put it in context. But this is also people's homes. There's huge, diverse indigenous communities that live there, many of them that have maintained their traditional cultures and their traditional ways of life. Um, and these are incredibly under threat at the moment. That's really tragic. That's really sad to hear. I mean, you, you kind of think, what can, what can we do as visitors other than support eco, like ecotourism projects that are positively impacting communities? I mean, I mean th- th- this, this is certainly an area that tourists can have a positive impact. You could argue that the the Amazon, the Bolivian Amazon has only been developed in this way now. It, well, it's been delayed until now because of tourism, and because tourism has supported local jobs and, um, and particularly uh, eco-lodges that benefit the indigenous communities. Mm. So my advice would be to, to visit, to visit, to spend your money there and then spread the word about what is happening in this area. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed when you go back in three years' time for the next rough guide to Bolivia, you'll find that it is still everything's still standing and that hopefully there's there's not as drastic changes that, that you've just said. Yeah, I, I, I hope so, and I hope I'm being overly pessimistic now. Yeah, <laughs> fingers we, crossed. We will see. All right, cheers for coming in, Shafik. Thank you. Now, Harry and Shafik's dispatches are completely different but I think they both hit home the same point that it's only through being on the ground and talking to locals and like Harry said visiting every nook and cranny of a country that you can properly update a guidebook and get to know a place and I think there's a pretty fundamental point made that the things our updaters witness on the road are not always rosy those homeless kids sleep in the car park in Nairobi where everyone else is rollerblading and There are serious environmental developments near the Moxos site in the Bolivian Amazon. 
So it's as much the duty of our guidebook authors to inform on how you can have the most amazing trip as it is for them to report on the context of a country and what's actually going on right now on the ground. Huge thank yous to Shafik Megji and Harriet Constable for coming into the studio and having a chat and sending us your wonderful recordings from the road. Thank you also to my producer Alana Chance, my assistant producer Katie Callan, and to Keith Drew from Rough Guides and Georgina D. And more than anyone else, thank you, listener, for tuning in once again. If you're enjoying the show, remember to subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a five-star review. It takes about three seconds and it means that other people will be able to discover the show. Thanks a lot and see you soon. Listener.